0: Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. You can follow along on the screens if you don't have a Bible in front of you. You can also use an app on your phone if you have that, but here we go. Chapter or verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Good morning.
1: Okay, that was was pretty weak, but I'll take it. You guys are in turkey coma. I don't know about you, but I grew up going to a church, and one of the first books my parents gave me was a Zondervan kids' uh, Bible, children's Bible. And on the very front, you have Noah. And if you open up the book into the Section about Noah. He's on this ark that's quite tiny, and a bunch of animals are hugging him, and they're smiling with big eyes. You guys, anyone know that picture? You grew up with that picture, and they're all happy. Uh, and apparently, it's enough room for everyone except the drafts, because the drafts can't fit their heads in, so they're sticking out the d- windows. You guys know what I'm talking about? Which, which I kind of thought about that. That would be quite. Uncomfortable for the giraffes the entire time the waters are coming down they're just out there <laughs> how's it going in there you know it just, it's kind of an interesting comical view and although that's sweet and, and perhaps perhaps appropriate for kids at a younger age I'm afraid it actually can be very harmful for us it's harmful for us because it neuters this story. You know, this story preaches well, because kids love cute animals, but most of us were never told the true story of Noah and the ark and the flood. This true story is too much for our modern sensibilities, and thus we tame scripture, we dumb it down, we gloss over which ultimately produces in us untested, weak faith and a domesticated small God. It's easily comprehensible. One writer, Heather Hawking, put it this way. But scripture is not tame. You can either ignore the hard parts and focus on the encouraging bits, though many of these are misquoted and misunderstood, or you can wrestle with the difficult passages and through them, know God more. Noah's Ark is not a children's story. It's about God killing all of humanity with a flood. Everyone on earth except one family Drown to death. That is not a children's story. This is sobering indeed. And I'm not, I'm honored to preach this word to you because this is my text this morning and we're preaching through Genesis and we'll go over every text God gives us here. But it is sobering for me. It's scary for me. We see a side of God that is difficult to study, but study we must. For it is, if it is the true God, we want to know God, the real God, the unaltered God. And we must go where it may be uncomfortable to go. Some, some people have said true intimacy is being fully known, yet fully loved. And if you have a heart to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, with all your strength, if you want to know God to the, the greatest level, then you need to know God in all the fullness of who he is and who he reveals himself to be in scriptures. And if you don't know that, God, then your love will be small. It will be weak. It will be stunted. So as we journey into this difficult doctrine of God's judgment, we will see hope. There is great mercy and hope for those who want it. Now, before we jump in, I need to lay some groundwork of where we're not going. I have a large large scripture to cover. I'm covering two chapters essentially. And I won't be able to cover every single verse, but I believe I'm gonna cover every major theme and be faithful to this text, the heart of this text. And I also want to let you know I'm not gonna get into all the specifics and debates about the flood regarding if it's a local flood in Mesopotamia only or was it actually a global flood? I'm not gonna get into talking about dinosaurs and and about how all the animals may have fit in the ark, nor am I going to talk about all the other myths like the epic of Gilgamesh and how they have uh, connections to Noah and everything that we see here. There's a lot of debates here, age of the earth, evolution, all that stuff. So if you're really into that stuff, happy to talk to you about that. I've spent a lot of time in that over the years, and I'm happy to talk to you, with you about that offline. But this morning, I want to focus on the main heart of what God is trying to show us in this text. I will serve you very poorly if we get caught up in only the weeds. The weeds are important, but we don't want to get caught and miss the main point here. So let's get some context. Pastor Daniel preached, did a great job unpacking last week's passage, but I need to go over it again just briefly because if we miss this context, we're going to miss this passage, and it's essential. So look at verse 7 with me. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. If you grew up in church, these are <clears throat> easy words to glance over. But did you just hear what I read? God will blot out everybody. God declares what he will do, and in our passage today, we see his judgment executed. But why would God do such a thing? Why would a loving, merciful God that we read about in Scripture do such a thing? Blot out all of humanity, all of creation. Verse 5. Let's go back at another verse, if you have your Bible open. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually do you see the emphasis here? Great, every, only, continually. Moses, the author, could not make it more clear how wicked mankind had become at this point. This is also repeated if you skip down to verse 13. We see more flavor to what the, how the wickedness manifested. And God said, no, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth more details are given that the earth is filled with violence that is a manifestation of the wickedness and it's interesting that god say i will they have polluted and corrupted the earth and therefore i'm going to take the earth, make the earth destroy them the reason why this is so important to recap these verses from last week is that if you miss these verses then it's going to drastically dictate how you emotionally comprehend what we're going to read today. And what I mean by that, if you skip over these passages and you think that these people were generally good people that, you know, of course made mistakes, no one's perfect, but generally good people, then you're going to feel rightly anger and skepticism towards God. You should. If you don't know these passages right here, if you didn't know that they're always thinking about evil all the time, then it would be very reasonable for you to be like, What is going on, God? Why would you do such a thing? But I want to make the point that if you have a problem with divine judgment, then you actually have a bigger problem than that. Let's be honest. That's a problem emotionally for us to comprehend a God that will judge and kill people. If you're not honest about that, something's off. That is a problem. But there is a greater problem. It's not nearly as bad as a problem of having a creator that is absolutely passive and unfeeling about those who are doing wicked things. That's a greater problem to have than a God that just sits in heaven and does not care about people whose thoughts are evil continually. It's a bigger problem to have a God that does not judge, does not care. And I had the thought that came to me this week we can jump to the conclusion that God is a monster. But may I suggest, perhaps our sin is worse than we realize. Perhaps God's reaction to our sin is absolutely measured and reasonable. Maybe we got it all backwards. It's interesting that we often assume that between the two options, God's a monster or our sin is that bad, we often jump to the conclusion that something is wrong with God and not with us. What I hope you saw last week in Daniel's sermon, please listen if you missed it, is that mankind is worse than we think, and it's offensive. I'm offended. If you were offended last week when you heard Pastor Daniel's sermon, I was offended with you. It grates at me, because I want to feel good about myself, and yet scripture puts us in our place. And, I, and I, as I was thinking about this passage, I was like, man, how can I apologetically explain to you how it makes sense that God would judge A thought started to build up in my mind as I'm reading the text is, maybe we get it all backwards. Maybe we should wonder why God doesn't judge more than he does. Maybe our view of sin is so small and it's just mistakes. It's just things that we need to improve on for our best life that that it makes sense that our our view of judgment is so insane. It makes no sense because our view of sin is so small. So, of course, God seems like he's overblowing it and, and being dramatic, but if we see sin rightly, then it's like, whoa, God, why are we even alive here? Why have mercy on a single person? See, we get it all backward, and and I am with you in that. I have these moments of wrestle with God. I get offended at him, and then I only have to look at my life and see certain experiences that expose my heart to see that I'm just like these people, and I need God's mercy as well. There's more problems about a God that doesn't judge, and Pastor Tim Keller has this really great section about the necessity of divine judgment, and I put it in our blog this week. So check it out online if you want to read it this week. It's several arguments of the necessity of the divine judgment, but I'm not going to get into that this morning. Now let's move on to verse 6, because this is essential, because we see the heart of judgment. Verse 6. Then the Lord regretted, listen, Pastor Daniel's sermon on that, that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Does your heart just recoil at the thought of judgment? <gasps> God, how could you judge people? There's nothing wrong for you to feel that. There's nothing wrong with your heart to feel a recoiling in your heart towards the idea of judgment. Nothing. That's right, you should feel pain and grief but what you need to know is that God does too. Verse five shows us the necessity of judgment and verse six shows us the heart of judgment. Are you upset over judgment? God is even more. Does it make you sick to your stomach, fathoming men, women, and children being killed? God is more. Look at this phrase on this text. It grieved him to his heart. What does that word grieve mean? Just a basic definition causes great distress to someone. Great distress. Do you grieve over people you've never heard of or met? And you hear these random numbers on the news? Probably not, right? Oh, that's sad. We move on. We move on our day. And maybe the best of us grieve and take a moment of sadness. But to truly grieve requires love. It requires a, a heart that is vulnerably connected to someone. The times in my life where I've wept like a baby over grievous people that I've loved deeply. So, this picture we have of God is one who has vulnerably connected his heart and joy to the state and fate of mankind. Don't underestimate how big of a deal this is. The Creator God has hitched his heart with ours, his joy is connected to our well being. That's a vulnerable state. God doesn't delight in judgment. Read the rest of the Bible. We see it over and over again. It grieves him, gives him great distress. And yet, if God is good and just, he must judge. So verse five gives us the why behind the judgment. Verse six gives us the heart behind the judgment. We must keep both of these in mind as we continue in our passage to understand and process the magnitude of this this judgment all the implications. Which finally leads us to verse eight. But Noah found in the eyes of the Lord, favor in the eyes of the Lord, these are the generations to Noah. Noah's a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I'm gonna fly through this because we've preached sermons on these realities already. Let me note three characteristics of Noah. First, blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? Remember, blameless is not sinless. You, every one of you here, can be blameless, it's not sinlessness. It's exemplary in light of your generation. It's overall, characteristically, you are exemplary and worthy to be imitated. Now, this next word comes up, characteristic of Noah, is righteous. Did you know that this is the first mention of righteousness in the Bible? I don't have time to get into all the nuances of righteousness, big debates on that, but a simple definition could be the state of being right and pleasing before God. Simp- simple state of being right and pleasing before God. Now, why is that important? Let me connect you to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. If you notice, Hebrews 11 is connected often with Genesis, so make sure you have that marked in your Bible to read in concert. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by... What? Faith. Faith. By faith. So where did Noah's righteousness come from? Faith. And what is faith? If you go down in Hebrews chapter 11, 1, now faith is a confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. Noah believed God and took him at his word. And this resulted, that faith resulted in a heart that's changed and overflowed into a lifestyle of good deeds And walking with God and blamelessness. What does it mean to walk with God? Last description of Noah. Just like two weeks ago, Enoch walked with God. Check out that sermon if you want to know more about what that is. In contrast to Noah, this blameless, righteous, walking with God man, we see this generation he lived among. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted the way on the earth. Remember that the original commission for humanity was to fill the earth. Remember that? Yeah. With image bearers of God. Thank you, Pastor Ross. <laughs> Ross and Charlotte are back. It's so good to have baby Vivian with us. But we see instead of filling the earth with God's image and his glory and his character and his values, they're filling the earth with violence, violence. And again, we see this all-encompassing language, all flesh had corrupted their way. And if you look at verse 17 and 19, we don't have time, but you can just note down if you're looking at our Bible, verse 17 and 19 include the animals. That's why the animals were destroyed except a few, which I'm not honestly sure why the animals were destroyed as well. And my best guess is that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. And where mankind goes as the image bearers of God so does all of creation is intricately connected to mankind. So when mankind degrades and spirals downward, it has this massive effect on all of creation. Nature, animals, and this is also connected to the curse of the world. That's my best guess in a few seconds. It's interesting that earlier in the chapter... We see man's wickedness in chapter 6 Manifest in sexual promiscuity and abuse of power And now we see wickedness further seen in violence My sense at this time There was no law Might made right And whatever the powerful Especially Cain's line Was just abusing and killing people with brute force And I wish I had time to unpack this more But I sincerely think this is a big huge blind spot in America In the church of America Violence, that is. We're really, really sensitive towards sexual promiscuity, which is good. We should be. We should be. But it feels like war, violence, is somehow got a pass that we think it's cool. It's entertaining to see someone bash someone's head. It's a good thing. And yet, if you study scripture, God is grieved and infuriated at violence. So I want to challenge you, especially men in here, if you have not done the work To spend time meditating on God's heart towards violence and let that renew your mind because our culture celebrates violence. We just dress it up. And we want to think the way God does about everything. So then we move on. God gives instructions for the ark. We're not going to get into all the details but a few will suffice. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out with pitch. This arc, depending on the length of a cubit, there's some debate on how long it would be. It could be as short as, the, the length of the arc could be as short as 1.5 football fields. You could just imagine how long that would be. It would be able to fit at least 244 railroad stock cars. If you ever sat at a light and just stood there for like 20 minutes, as a, like that, that would fit in the arc. So A lot of capacity. And from what I've read, it was an engineering genius. The ark was perfectly set up where it would be stable, not too high that it would capsize over, not too long that it would break from the pressures of the crosswinds and the waters right in between, but just stable enough. It's really interesting stuff if you want to read about it more. But I'm going to go into verse 18 and 20, mostly without comment because Pastor Ross is going to talk, talk about the Noahic Covenant next, next week. Verse 18. <clears throat> but I'll confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. That's super cool. Just a small little note that God's absolute power and control and authority of creation, the animals are coming to Noah. I mean, you just imagine the opposite of that, right? Noah having to find them and like grab them and bring them in, that would be awful. So this is a little sweet little note. Verse 22 though, I wanna focus on 22 for a minute. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Do you see the repetition of words here? Did this, he did all. This is astounding. Noah did not negotiate, did not argue or talk back. In fact, we have no record of Noah even being able to speak until chapter (laughs) 8. He's just silent, just receives, no disagreeing. Where's Noah's quiet obedience coming from? Faith. He believes God's word. He, he believes his character. So when God speaks, he listens and obeys. Do you want that kind of obedience to God? I want that. Oh, man, I'm so hard-hearted, guys. I'm so stubborn. I can argue with God so often. I think I know better than him because I'm 34. I've read some books. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The insanity that we think we know better, and yet I argue with him regularly in my, either outwardly or definitely in my heart, and oh, that would be the case that I would be able to just receive what God says, and that would be the case for all of us here. You have to consider the magnitude and insanity of what God commanded Know what to do. It's easy for us to imagine obeying God when you already agree with something. Who doesn't do that? If you already like something and you want to do it anyway and God's like, do that, you're like, sure, great, love it. But what about if God asks you something that is difficult or just plain crazy or you just disagree with? What do you do then? I mean, think about the insanity of God's command. Remember at this point, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, no rain had yet come onto the earth. It was just only coming from the ground. God is asking him to build a giant boat That would own his life for decades, up to 120 years. This isn't a command like, hey, can you go over and talk to that person? It'll take you five minutes, Sam. We're like, oh, that's so much. I'm too busy. 120 years project. (laughs) It would take considerable time, money, energy. It would own his life and his family. And God is asking him to prepare for a flood when no flood has ever happened in human history. Imagine the insanity of listening to this from God. How difficult would it be to trust and obey God? I mean, can you put yourself in those shoes? I mean, how many of you guys would be like, "Mm, excuse me? God, did you not know? Have you not seen? But for Noah, it didn't matter what the command was, but who it was from. And I think that's really good. Yeah, I don't expect me reading that Scripture's just zooming out. I don't expect it was easy for Noah and he didn't have his moments. The beautiful thing about this passage, it tells us the overview of what Noah did. Though disobedience wasn't just one simple act. It was a process of many years to construct this ark, Likely 40 to 50 plus decades, not 120 probably. So Noah had initial, yes, God, but that one yes was followed by thousands of yeses. Thousands of moments where he had to wrestle with his will. I would guess there's moments where he wake up just sore and say, I don't want to do this again. The longer you get away from the initial command, the more hazy it becomes. Oh, did God really say that? I mean, why am I spending all my money and time when my friends are just having a great time? Why am I doing this? You can imagine just waking up thinking, like, can I just fit in today, God, not being that crazy old Noah? But in the end, he persevered because he set his faith on God. And that's encouraging for me, and I hope it is for you, because there's gonna be times we're gonna wrestle and struggle with God, times where our obedience will delay, but what God ultimately sees as he zooms out is that we ultimately do follow him and obey. That's why I love Eugene Peterson's definition of discipleship on the screen. A long obedience in the same direction. Just love that. Not perfect obedience, but a trajectory of continual obedience following of God. Seems like a lot happens actually after verse 22 in chapter 7. Many years pass and Noah built the ark and God gives him more instructions. Verse 5 through 7. Would you read this out loud? And Noah did all. Now I'm going to read verse 11. I'm not going to put a lot of comments there. In the 600th, I can't say the word, sixth. 600th year of Noah's life. My wife makes fun of me all the time. And now, now I just gave you guys all that, and you're going to listen for it. Just like we all laugh when Ross says vulnerable, right? Everyone's going to be listening. On the 17th day, sorry, bro. In the seventh day of the month. Where am I? On the day of all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. We see two sources of water: water from above, water from below. We'll get into the waters from above—the rain—that's where most people think. But but think about the waters from below. The text says that the fountains of the great deep burst forth. My basic understanding of nature and water is that water just doesn't burst forth by itself. Likely, it's going to be a mixture of chemicals and and minerals and different kind of elements in incredibly high temperatures. Think about like a geyser or a volcano. Don't think of just about like a refreshing water, like a water fountain. They're just like flapping water. I mean, imagine tectonic plates just moving, earthquakes, water bursting forth. The result of this is that it would drastically influence and shape the earth's topography. In other words, mountains would become valleys, valleys would become mountains. I mean, the whole entire earth's atmosphere would be dramatically different. The earth that we have now is not the earth that was then. It's impossible to perfectly estimate what happened, but what we can say for sure, that there is a complete reorientation of the earth. Hence why you, you may see the continents kind of can fit as a puzzle. You know, just things, things happened, things changed. And it's kind of like a reversal of creation. Can you imagine? you guys remember in Genesis chapter one, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and it was dark? It's kind of like we're starting over. It's a decreation of everything. But I do love this next verse, verse 16. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord, or Yahweh, shut him in. There's a lot here. old old, old preachers back in the day preach entire sermons on just verse 16. And they kind of like go all all off the rails trying to explain this, but I love that. Yahweh should have been. God is ultimately the one is keeping Noah and his family secure. Keeping him. What was it like for those who were swept up before the flood? Let's kind of try to go deeper because it's easy to gloss over. I know how easy it is. I feel it too. What was it like for those swept up before the flood? Were they panicking, trying to make it onto the boat? Were every day, were they showing up in a line, talking to Noah, just saying, hey, Noah, no, I know this flood is coming. Would you please give us passage onto your boat? Well, Jesus actually tells us what it was like. Look at Matthew 24, 37. Would you read this with me? For as were the days of Noah... They were unaware. This is sobering. Yes, the earth was filled with violence, but it also seemed there was a lot of normal life eating, drinking, marrying, Black Fridaying. It was just life, mundane life. That wasn't a subtle condemnation of Black Friday and our consumerism of our society. But they had no idea of what was going on. They were spiritually asleep to reality, to God, to judgment. And listen, and they were not without many chances to wake up. Let me show, take you to 2 Peter. We're going to spend some time in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2.5. If God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald, note that word herald, of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This word herald is another name for preacher, a proclaimer. It's word-focused. Hebrews 11, we see that his conduct was preaching, and then here we see his words are preaching, and yet the people did not listen. For many decades, Noah preached, and yet they did not turn from their wickedness. They knew about God. I mean, think about this. There were just a few generations away from those who walked intimately from God. They knew about God. They weren't all atheists. Likely, they were just shaping God in their own image. They probably mocked Noah. Noah, yeah, things aren't perfect. Yeah, I see murders every day, but... God would never wipe away everyone. He's not like that. He's a God of mercy and patience and love. I do believe that if they were willing to turn, they would have received mercy. And yet they did not. They were too far gone. So the question that we should rightly ask will we? Will we wake up? Will we heed these warnings? Are you? See, Noah's flood is a powerful example of God's judgment and wrath for us to consider. I mean, think about this. Consider the rain. At this point, it never rained, remember? And you can imagine, it just started off with wonder and amazement. Like little children are like, woo, you know, like open your mouth, and it's so nice. And, but so- shortly after that, the wonder quickly turns to confusion And to concern as the waters keep coming and got thicker, and all of us know what it's like to be caught in a rainstorm without an umbrella and where the water comes and it's so thick it pelts you and it's painful. You guys know what I'm talking about? I can imagine this was worse. And we all know what it's like to drive in a rainstorm you literally cannot see and everyone's driving like five miles per hour. This would be more. And you can imagine what it's like just even last year when my basement flooded It came after like three or four days of consecutive rain. Do you guys remember that rainstorm that came like three days in a row? And you literally think there's just no way it could keep raining. There's just no way like that, that there's that much water. And yet for 40 days, unending water. And you can imagine the terror when these people realized crazy old Noah was right. And you can imagine how the waters would continue to rise and people's homes would flood and so they'd start climbing the biggest richest house and then eventually the waters would still come even more and then they would start to climb the biggest hill and the waters would still come and then they would climb the biggest mountain they could and the waters would still come and all around them they're seeing men and women and children drowning and dying, left and right bodies floating everywhere and so the flood waters are like the wrath of God. I'm not trying to be dramatic, I'm trying to be accurate trying to love you right now by telling you the truth of what the wrath of God is like, what the judgment of God is like. We have such a small view of the wrath and judgment of God, and I fear that because there is such a thing as hyper-fundamentalism in our country, we have so reacted in pendulum swing where God is neutered and there's no judgment. He's just nice. And we follow God because we want a good life. And there's no fear of him anymore. This is all foreshadowing the wrath of God that is to come upon the earth. Look at 2 Peter 3, back to 2 Peter 3 6. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They're being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Listen, God is no monster, God is patient. Our sin is really that bad. We are sinners and deserve this kind of judgment. The first global judgment was with water. The second will be with fire. And we may think God would never do such a thing. He's probably gonna change his mind. But what we see from this text is God indeed has done such a thing. And he will again. Do you tremble at this, Christian? Do you tremble at this skeptic or unbeliever of a God with this much ferocity towards sin and wickedness? Who is just and will judge the ungodly? Yes, his mercy and his love is deep, more than you know. But his judgment is terrible as well. This is no god to take lightly. And if you're wondering right now, you think God is not fair. This isn't fair that He created a world like this. I understand that feeling. I've thought that many times. But let me just remind you that He plays by the same rules. He subjects Himself to the same kind of judgments. Look at 1 Peter 3, which also talks a lot about the flood. Peter was really about the flood, apparently. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Would you read this out loud? Because it's so powerful. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. See, when Christ came, instead of destroying the world for their sin... He was destroyed for the world's sin. On the day Jesus was executed, the wrath of God that was for me, for you, was poured upon Jesus like a flood and he drunk every last drop of it. And you, don't, I, you and I don't have to perish from the flood of God's judgment because Jesus already did. Yeah, his judgment and his wrath is great, but his love is even greater. We have to hold both up. Now, considering any of you who have thought with me, why isn't Jesus back yet? It's been 2,000 plus years. Where is he? Where is he? Well, let's go back to 2 Peter 3.8. He's continuing this argument about the flood. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like 1,000 years to the Lord and 1,000 years like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Do you see God's heart here? He doesn't want to destroy you. He doesn't want to destroy this world, but he wants everyone to return to him. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Don't you think you can time it? Don't you think you can wait till you're on your deathbed and you do whatever you want and one day, oh yeah, God will have mercy on me. You have no idea when that day will come. You cannot time your death. Only God can. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. This is terrible. But it's right. It's good. And he's giving us time. What is God giving us time for? Time for us to make sure we're walking with God, fully obeying him with all of our hearts. And number two, time to be faithful heralds of truth to our friends and family and co-workers and neighbors. We have such good news to share with everyone, an opportunity to be delivered from judgment. That's such good news. We have to get on the ark, though. The ark foreshadows Christ those who have faith and obey Jesus are safe with him and counted righteous. The wrath of God will batter this wicked world, cleanse and obliterate this wicked world. But those who are in the ark will be safe with Christ. And let me just say if you're not sure you're safe with Christ today, you gotta know. You gotta know. You can't guess. This is one thing you can't, you have to be certain about. If you're not sure you're safe in Christ as your ark, Please talk with me today. Do not delay no matter what. I want to pray with you. I want you to know, and if you are here and you know you are safe, I pray and hope that this passage freshly filled your heart with awe and fear of the wrath of God and the judgment that Jesus took for you lovingly that he did not deserve, and yet he did it willingly with love and that we don't ever have to fear this judgment because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is, Father, you know my prayers this week. You know that I, there's just no possible way I can rightly explain this. I can't, I can't yell loud enough, I can't share enough cool illustrations to help us feel the magnitude of the wrath that was, that was, and the fun, and the wrath that came upon Jesus and the wrath that is to come on earth. So I pray by your spirit, fill every heart here with a fresh realization in a fear of you, God. Help us not take you so lightly. Help us not abuse your mercy and grace. Fill our hearts with the fresh urgency for the lost in our lives. And If anyone here does not know, they're actually walking with you, not sure they're secure. Lord, work in their hearts right now. And may today be the day that they fully surrender to you in all your ways and receive you as king. Please, Lord. And if there's any way that I dishonored you with this sermon, I did not faithfully represent you from this Bible. I did not represent you in your heart or in my manner. Please correct me. But Father, all that is true that I just spoke, let it deeply shape us.